The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Now, the European Commission has decreed uh, that the issue uh, of flexibility afforded to Ireland on water charges no longer applies. And um, this means that we may well be fined by the European Union because... uh, if memory serves, we were fined in the past in relation to wastewater. Well, I, uh, my guest is Shane Coleman, the political editor here on Newstalk, who's been keeping abreast of the programme uh, of the issue. Shane, what's happening in your view? Well, George, your memory serves you well, because in the past we were fined by the uh, European Court of Justice, €12,000 a day. We ended up paying out, that was in relation to septic tanks, we ended up paying out €3.5 million. Euros. What has happened, this was a question put down by Lynn Boyne, Boylan, the Sinn Féin MEP, uh, and she effectively asked, "Look, what is the what is the the situation with regards Ireland's exemption from the EU law, which obliges all countries to have water charges? We initially did have uh, a, an exemption, but the European Commission emphatically replied in this written response to Boylan's question that that exemption no longer applies." because we introduced charges and metering in 2010 and that established the practice of water charges. So from now on, we have to introduce water charges and it leaves us open to... It's a it's a long drawn out enough process, but it ultimately will potentially involve us being taken to the European uh, Court of Justice. Now we can argue the case for it in there, but given that every other country in the EU has water charges, it will be a difficult case to answer. All right. Well, I'm joined on telephone because um, my guest will be busy in Dolan today. Is the anti austerity alliance TD for Dublin West, Ruth Carpenter? Deputy Carpenter, what do you make of all this? Uh, what I, I'd like to correct what we've been hearing all day because there's nowhere that the EU Commission said in their answer that Ireland was in breach. What they actually said in reply to the question put was that member states shall not be in breach of the directive if they decide in accordance with established practices. Right, I won't go into the whole answer, but it, then it goes Would on. you explain that to me? Okay. Because I don't it says, understand the, that. The last sentence, if the established practice is to have a system in place implementing the recovery of the cost of water services, the Commission considers that the flexibility would not apply, right? There's no way that anybody could argue there's been an established practice in Ireland of charging for water. There was for one year water charges introduced that failed to be collected, that failed to get the support of the majority in society. Irish Water was a loss-making entity from start to finish. Um, What is galling, though, the Commission doesn't actually give an opinion in their answer. It's just a, a factual written answer. So is, they, uh, sorry, Deputy Coppinger, because this is way beyond my pay grade. Um, are you suggesting... I'm sure you will understand that, George. Perth no, no, honestly. Honestly, yeah. I'm being truthful now. I really am. I mean, all I know is... And you confirmed it. You said all day today 
uh, what we are hearing is wrong. So I, I'm only asking, mm. does okay. that mean that well, every commentator today, it's not just Shane Coleman, every commentator today has been wrong in this issue? Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that the European Commission gave a factual answer right. where they made it clear that you have to have an established practice of charging for water. So what they've done then separately is leaked their answer to journalists and then put the spin on it that Ireland is in breach and could be fined for not having water charges. Now, it's hardly a shock that a non-elected neoliberal body that's imposed water privatisation on Portugal and Greece is in favour of water charges. But what it's showing up is how undemocratic the EU is and how, you know, the wealthy and the one percent in this country and in Europe won't give up on well, they sorry, brought Deputy in Coppinger. this commodification. Uh, Deputy Coppinger, hang on a minute. I I I you know, you're entitled to the views you hold on all these matters. But like they they're irrelevant in this issue. Like the anti austerity alliance told the people of Greece, you know, tell the EU to take a hike and do this and do that and do the other thing. The Greeks went along with that, discovered that it doesn't work and the Greeks are arguably in a worse place today than they ever were. Uh, because eventually the EU said, if you want the money, if you want to be in the club, this is what you have to do. Now, I don't know whether they're 1% or whether they're neoliberal or what the hell they are, but we are members of it. And there are 27 of us or whatever who are members of it. And if they've imposed it on Greece and Portugal, uh, they're going to impose it on us. Why would, well, they, why, would they, why would they give us a freebie if they wouldn't give it to Greece and Portugal? Well, there hasn't been an established practice in Ireland of charging for water. That's the, the issue. And it's perfectly possible for the Irish government to tell the EU that in accordance with long-established practices, they won't be attempting to apply water charges on the because though. they have failed to persuade the population to try what was a novel experiment for a year, hardly an established practice. But can I just add as well that what we're seeing here about the EU You've mentioned Greece, you've mentioned... Uh, I'll go into all that if you want. No, no, I, I couldn't bear I it. I know, yeah, but you know, why did you bring it up then? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I'm just saying they've established, as you confirmed, okay. they've established water charges. Well, yesterday, for example, well, let's take the election we've just had. The people gave their answer, whether you like it or not, and clearly you and other journalists don't like it, but 70% of the voters of return to I'm a Democrat, Deputy Governor. Yeah, okay, so. And when you're Taoiseach and when you're Minister for Finance, you know, uh, I'll, I'll support the government run by you, same as I support any other government. Okay, I'm a Democrat. Well then, will you support the message that was given very clearly on this issue? Because there's one thing that we're, we are clear on, 70% return TDs on a platform of opposition to water charges and to Irish water. And so the government has to respect that, and so does the EU. Yesterday on the House, no, they don't. The, the EU, EU doesn't. Sorry, I, Deputy Coppinger, the EU didn't accept that the, the majority of of, uh, of members of the Greek Parliament were were elected on a, mm. on a program that was anti-EU. Didn't make a blind bit of difference. The Greeks, the Greeks still uh, had to had to bend the knee. Shane Coleman wants to come in with something, Deputy, if I may. Yeah, just just to clarify, because uh, Ruth 
wanted to correct me uh, earlier and, and just to actually say what exactly the Commission did say in response to the question. They said if the established practice is to have a system in place implementing the recovery of cost of water services in accordance with polluter pays, the Commission considers that the flexibility mm-hmm. afforded to member states would not apply. Now, they also went further in briefing uh, in briefing people about this yesterday and they, their argument basically was once Ireland established water charges then the derogation that we had got the Irish clause yeah. uh, a number of years ago did not apply. Now we can argue as to whether and, and, and Root will argue that we can put that case uh, in, in the Court of Justice and undoubtedly we can the result of the general election is largely irrelevant to that. This is an issue of EU law. If the people of Ireland elect the next doll to say, uh, you know, a, a segment of Irish law uh, is wrong, that doesn't mean that the law will inevitably be changed. It is the EU law. And if the European Court of Justice finds against us, and I would have thought there is at least a 50-50 chance and I okay. think it's it's more than that that they will All find right, against us. Okay. Yeah. Then yeah. we are facing deputy I made it perfectly clear in my comments that the European Commission is in favour of water charges and would like to foist them on Ireland. But equally, even going by the wording of their own answer, I doubt anybody could argue with a great case to say there wasn't an established practice but it was, of, uh, sorry. of recovering the cost okay. of water. I think there's a, a slightly but grammatical difference between you and Shane Coleman, which I'd like to tease out. Um, y- y- you say an established practice. I think Shane said, uh, quoting Europe, the establishment of water charges. Now, no, we... Uh, no, I have the wording in front of me. Yeah, it's the established said practice. The same. It says established practice. Okay, fine. I just it, want to clear up. Implementing the recovery of the cost of water right. services. Okay, got it, now, come here. Surely nobody can argue that there was ever an established practice or that we recovered the cost of water services. You know, so legally, actually, there will be a huge case. But I, 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 I totally agree with Shane in that, yes, the EU has now become so completely undemocratic that it probably would turn around and try to argue against us. Yesterday in the Housing Committee, we were told we can't spend the Strategic Investment Fund, that, which are savings Ireland has, because that would be in breach of the EU rules. So we can't use five billion that we have to solve the housing crisis because it would breach. EU well, we do rules. have an option. I mean, Deputy Coppinger, we do have an option which the British are exercising, mm. which is a Brexit. So therefore, um, if the people of Ireland elect. Uh, a government that uh, the majority want to leave Europe. We do have uh, we do have that opportunity. Well, it does bring home though why there's a growing, not just in Britain but around Europe, uh, uh, you know, anger and uh, resentment about the practices that the EU Commission yeah, is okay. uh, bringing in, yes. uh, ignoring democratic mandates, you said, yourself All right. in relation but, uh, to Greece uh, yeah. and other countries. But, but Deputy Coppinger, Shane, I want to bring you in here, because Deputy Coppinger has, has widened the debate, and I think fairly widened the debate, it, it, that there is discontent across Europe. Is that like many people believe that Britain is a stalking horse for other countries, that if Britain left, other countries might leave the EU. So isn't Deputy Coppinger correct that uh, this isn't a happy, a happy family? 
I, I think that is undoubtedly true. I think, and there, you know, we've seen in referendums here, we've seen a, there's a, there is a certainly a, a, a cohort of the electorate, a sizable minority of the electorate that are now Eurosceptic. Does it, I mean, if there was a referendum for leaving the EU here tomorrow, would it be passed? It wouldn't even come close to being passed. But I think you would probably get 30% of the electorate who, who would vote yeah, for that. But, but Deputy Governor, let's go back to this famous paragraph that we've yeah. been talking about, right? The, 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 the country did set up a system of water charges and roughly 50% is fair to say paid, didn't they? Yeah. I'd say roughly 50. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 50% paid and 50% didn't pay. So according to even uh, like Fianna Fáil who uh, are proposing who proposing this suspension and so on, they're saying that the people who haven't paid up to this point are going to be pursued until they do pay. So uh, there hasn't a free pass hasn't been given to the fifty percent who haven't paid. No. Well, we'll have to wait and see what yeah, arises yeah. in nine months or whenever. But are you not even on my side, like on one issue? Don't you think I ought to get a refund if uh, these water charges are scrapped? Oh, I've advocated you should get a refund, George. Yeah, I think it would be totally unfair for you to be treated in a different way. But they're suggesting we won't get a refund. I agree with you having to pay something that was never justified in the first place. So. And, and the money is there to pay it back because if we're talking about fairness, what about people on group water schemes who have paid for the water for decades? Should they also get a refund on water? Is water not a human right for them as well? It is. Yeah, I, you probably misunderstand because we've always advocated there should be an equal treatment of people. And so, ha, so do we pay them back 20 years, 30 years? And, and where does the money... I mean, given that we already need 13... I think is it 13 billion euros to invest in the water system. Uh, we, it, it looks like we may also be getting daily fines on this and we also have to pay back people on group water schemes. That's an awful lot of money. No, well, I, I didn't advocate that we pay back for 20 yeah, years, people sure, group water yeah. schemes. What I advocated was that, in as far as possible, there should be a public water uh, supply to people and there shouldn't be people having to pay separately. There should be a subsidy for those people or a grant. So I, I do agree with yeah, that. Yeah, Deputy Governor agrees, Shane, that, what, I mean, paying back or refunding is one thing. The, the Deputy Governor agrees the water is a right, and that whether you're in a group scheme or you're, you're living in a house, you should, you should be entitled to that water free. I mean, it, it, we're totally wrong in a way that uh, one of us pays for water and has been doing it forever and another one of us doesn't pay for water. So we have to get a national system on water, don't we, Deputy? Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, well, look, there has to be a huge investment in the water network. The, the issue that people who oppose the water charges had was that we saw this as a stalking horse for privatising water in the future because once you commodify something as we've seen with the bins and other things it then becomes attractive for a private company to buy it up and start but it uh, isn't is it, as has happened in England. Yeah, a listener says that the first line of the EU water directive says water is not a commercial product. A listener tells me. Yeah, well it may say that but uh, they've imposed water privatisation on Portugal and Greece as part of right. the uh, you know system that they've pursued. There but I do think there is an issue here because I'm on this housing committee, which hopefully you'll cover soon, 
um, or maybe I have. I, I, I don't know, George. But we, co- we covered it yesterday, actually, on the, yeah, the programme. But, yeah. but we had in uh, the NTMA and we had in the Department of Finance and this whole issue of off-balance sheet, of not being able to spend basically anything in the public sector, that any investment, for example, in housing or anything else will have to be done through private. It's, it's a recipe for uh, compulsory privatisation. And we won't be able to resolve our housing crisis unless we either break those EU rules or impose huge wealth taxes to pay for an increased housing supply. Okay, Shane? I just think there's huge political implications from this yesterday. Regardless of where you stand on, on, on water charges, there's huge political implications because we have this commission that is going to look into water. If you add into the mix the, the likelihood or, or certainly the strong possibility of EU fines, add it to the fact that we probably need 13 billion euros spent that we have. We know all the statistics. Half the water is lost. There's sewerage going into uh, yeah. into the water in 44 locations around the country. There's a massive... And, and the money is not there at the moment for that. I don't see how this commission will not recommend some form of water charges, which will inevitably bring things to a head in Dáil. Now, that commission report is then to go back to a, a Dáil committee and then to be voted on in the Dáil. I think that is going to make life very difficult in terms of the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael agreement and I think there's a huge political problem ahead uh, there for the government. It won't be an issue for Sinn Féin. It won't be an issue, I mean, you know, Ruth and, and her colleagues have been consistent about this, whether you agree or disagree with them, but I think it will raise real, real right. question marks okay. for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Thank you both so much. Uh, just in passing, Deputy Coppinger, um, a listener sent me a, a photograph of his bill in the Dublin Hotel today and they charged him 50 cents for tap water. I've heard of this happening previously. I mean, that's yeah. obviously ridiculous. Uh, presumably it was for the person to, to carry it over from the, the bar to the table. Like, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll wait and see. No doubt we'll be talking to you again, uh, certainly on, also on that issue of housing, which is very important. Deputy Ruth Coppinger, the Anti-Austerity Alliance TD for Dublin West, and of course, the ever-factual Shane Coleman, Newstalk's political editor. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie A listener sent me an email and I I was so interested in it, I I asked him to come in and he's decided to come in. It's John. And the issue is um, about post-retirement, when, of course, all of us, our income drops, um, how is he going to rent a house? And he asked for advice. So I went to the uh, oracle of all wisdom on these matters, the lecturer in housing studies at DIT, Lorcan. Sir, uh, Lorcan, welcome to the program. And, John, thank you so much for coming in. Now, there's a lot of personal information in your email. Thank you for that. We don't need to go there. In principle... Your position will be with your partner that um, you don't own a house like a lot of retired people would own a house. Therefore, you're in rental and your income will drop post-retirement like most people again and you're worried about renting. So from that point of view, you might fill me in. Um, Well, my partner um, and myself uh, both recently went through uh, divorces 
and were both well paid in jobs and have pensions. But it occurred to me, because we're not in a situation where we can get a mortgage at, at the present time, that we could end up renting after retirement. And I got very concerned about this because I'd done a bit of research and I wondered how, looking at what potentially we would earn, how we could afford to pay after retirement and have a decent standard of living. Okay, now, you don't have to give me your exact age, but law forbids me asking how old you are. Can you give me, the, are you 40s, 50s, what decade um, are you? I am actually 48 today, George. Oh. <laughs> but don't get any cake, I've had enough now already from my All right, okay, so I, we got the age thing, all right. Um, but it would appear, though, and because I'm sort of setting the scene the way for Lorcan, given the way things are going, and given that, you know, my my professor of geriatrics tells me you're probably likely to live to 90, you probably will have to work until you're 70 or 75. Possibly, but... Um, but not at the income level you're currently achieving. No, I would imagine that I would have to possibly find another job after I retire from my current role. Yeah. Now, look, it starts with me as an expert on housing studies. Like, when John talks about getting another job, I see, I've seen this a lot in America because older people have some kind of arithmetic knowledge which young people don't. A lot of these jobs, though, are still pretty basic, like they're in supermarkets or, or whatever. Being killed they're, in that, yeah. Yeah, they're not necessarily sort of lead economists at some insurance company. Well, the other thing to think about, George, is that a lot of the focus of the conversation that we're having here is about the income. And really, it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or if you're on a minimum wage in B&Q as a 66-year-old. The one thing you don't want to be doing when you're retired is renting. The system you in Ireland... You don't want to be renting. No, you do, not, you do not want to be renting when you're 66. The entire system in Ireland is predicated on, on the assumption that when you're 66, you have a property, that you're debt-free. You have a property that yeah. is paid off. You don't have a mortgage. The fair deal scheme is predicated around having an asset that you can release. Uh, and our pension scheme, our pension system, state pension, is designed to pay your cost of living but not your living costs. So the whole thing is designed that you don't have to pay rent or mortgage when you're 66. So even if you are a millionaire, the problem with renting when you're 66 and 76 and 86 is not necessarily the income and your income will drop and that could be an issue. Uh, is so th- there's two issues. One is the fact that your landlord might decide to increase or change your rent. But the second one, which is the real killer, is what's known as Section 34 of the Residential Tenancies Act, the right a landlord has to evict you. Now, you do not want to be 68 years of age or 72 years of age and have the landlord knock on your door and say, Dear George, my nephew's on right. UCD, you've got to leave your okay, house. OK, but John and I didn't ask you in here to give us a depressing monologue on, uh, on life. Give us something to hang Give John and I on his birthday. Give <laughs> us something to hang on to here. I just give reality, George. <laughs> the, OK, the reality is this. Um, about in, in the next 25 years or so, about 30% of all households are going to rent. Okay, in the, that's aside from the social housing sector. So we'll have about 30% of households in the private rented sector. And that isn't to do with housing. A lot of that is to do with the type of jobs that people have. The idea that we'll be working on contract, three months, six months, nine months, five year contracts. We're well educated, we're well paid when we're working. But when we go to the bank and they say, what's your, 
employment status and you say contract, they're not going to give you a mortgage, right? So 30% of households renting is a good thing because eventually we're going to have, there's over 700,000 people renting at the moment. The more weight of numbers that you have, the likelihood the law is going to change in favour of All better right. security. But, but I, I, I want to get back to John because John has, has, has correctly sort of researched this and thought about it. Um, you can't, I don't want to pry, I mean, this is a good discussion, but at the same time, I don't want to pry into your private life. The suggestion clearly is you either can't get a mortgage or don't want one. No, we're not in a position at right. the minute to apply okay. for a mortgage. All right, okay. So therefore, you're, 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 you have to rent. That's the yeah. economics yes. of it. Um so, but that's not a problem for you clearly at the moment because you have, you have two incomes or, or some you have a substantial income stream. What you're trying to do here is is say, where am I going to be in twenty years' time? Yes, age sixty eight. Old age pension comes in sixty seven. It's two hundred and fifty quid now. It's the twenty year whatever it'll be in twenty years. Um, I I just well I tell you what I do. I think I tell you what I do, right? Um, one is uh, I would try by uh, hiring a smart accountant or lawyer or something, I would try and get a buy to let property, like an apartment, right? And then I would rent that. On the be- this is all predicated on certain things, which already Lurkin Sarah's bucket of cold water already. <laughs> um, so I would get a buy-to-let property, right? And the, the rental would then enable me in 20 years' time to pay off the mortgage and now I own an apartment. There's only two of us. Uh, we don't tend to have any kids. So it could be fairly simple, one-bedroom, kitchen, living room kind of apartment, Right. The, the the second thing is that I might buy a house in Drumshambo, right, um, which would be pretty cheap. At the moment, unlivable because I don't know how long it would take me to get from Drumshambo to Dublin. And then I'd try and find some way that I could let that in Drumshambo. Problem is, I don't know what the letting market is like in Drumshambo. Larkin, sir, what I'm saying to John, therefore... Is that the way? I, the, the, my view of this is he has to buy a property. Yeah, I would kind of agree with you. Would it, you it really? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've written down Leitrim is the word. I've in, in the notes here. You say Drumshambo, <laughs> and I think we're in the same parish there. Coincidentally, the interesting thing is coming up to four, after forty-five, you're not going to get a mortgage. Right, so there's a huge amount of pressure on people. But there's up to ton the age of people of over forty-five getting mortgage. Yeah, who might have a mortgage already or a property already. If you oh, haven't got a property already, so there's a whole generation of people coming up to forty-five who are suddenly panicking to get this mortgage because they need to pay it off by the but time. If they, but if you buy to rent, right? Hmm. It, it, John doesn't buy it, right? The XYZ Corporation buys it. Yeah, a bit of financial chicanery. If I mean, if you can oh, do it's that, it's not that, financial that's... chicanery. I mean, like <laughs> I think John seriously, like you need a Wizkid accountant here, and like you, do you know what I mean? Yes, I, yes. Or Wizkid solicitor, or these kind of guys, and there must be banks who are lending to companies like. I borrowed enough money in my life not to want to borrow anymore. So, <laughs> I, but I mean, there must be a way. John should be exploring a way to borrow to buy rather than exploring 
what am I going to do when I'm 60 something? Yeah, the great thing about John is actually, and it's, you know, it's, it's force majeure, he's thinking about it when he's 48. Yes, correct. And that's amazing. A lot of people don't think about two things. A, what am I going to do? And B, what kind of a house am I going to live in when I'm 70 or 80? There is one question. I sort of migrated John to drug shambo when I was <laughs> asking him. Would you funny. have an issue of living outside Dublin? No, it, it's funny. I um I did a bit of research on this and I thought about moving to a more rural area, but it would be a matter of saving, let's say, for the next 17 years and then taking a lump sum out of your pension when you got there and then being able to buy in a more rural area, potentially even Portugal or Spain. And I heard a crazy... Well, tons of British have done that for decades. Yeah, and I heard a crazy suggestion that some people are actually cruising around the world. I'd hold on that one. I'd hold on that one. But Lorcan, sir, you're an expert at DIT in housing studies, right? In fact, John has done really well here, I think, because property in France is cheaper, as I understand it, isn't that? Tax, so? Taxes are a lot higher, though, but yeah, property generally would be cheaper. All right, but if you got sick, you'd be better off. Um, but <laughs> but it, like Toulouse is quite a nice place. Yeah, it's a lovely place. Yeah, there's loads of places. I spent last year living in Spain, and there's loads of places you could buy for 150,000 euro beside the sea. Your your medicines, if you do get sick, are a lot cheaper, and your doctors are a lot cheaper, and the weather is a lot now, better. Now, John, I, you see, I'm, I'm very conscious about prying, and I'm not going to do that. We're not looking at your, your... But your pension scheme, listening to you, is a private pension, is yes. it? Is there a few quid in it? Yes, yes. Now our smart accountant, right our whiz kid accountant, is there not a way that he can parlay? Because I think you have to buy. I think what we're talking about here is how can we get you to buy, you know, how can we get you to mm. buy a property, yeah. right? So our whiz kid accountant, can he not parlay John's pension? Does your partner have a pension scheme? Yes. Private also? Yes. It's got to be... If you can release 20 or 30% of that early and put you, like you're not going to get a 90% mortgage on a buy to let or even an 80% mortgage on a buy to let, you'll get less, you'll get 60. So if you can use some of that collateral, that but you can have you there not, earlier, like, I mean, for instance, can you not go to the bank and say, you might be able to access the money from your pension now, but you're 48. Like, yeah. if you take it out now, my understanding would be you'd pay 50% tax on it, would be my understanding, right? Roughly speaking. So, therefore, what you will be doing is using it as collateral to buy a thing. Yeah, you'd lever your pension to, to buy yeah. 60% of a house in Drumshambo or Portugal. The, I mean, George, I totally agree with you. The idea is definitely you have to buy somewhere. The question is where do yeah. you buy somewhere and how do you do that? And, I mean, easily you'll get a bargain in Drumshambo without a doubt uh, that you'd be able to afford. And probably yeah, but, but to lose now or like uh, John, I don't know whether he's a rugby fella or not, but like you, you, you'd you only have to look like at the top 14 rugby and there'd be a t- Ajan yeah. or Bordeaux or... You could do Airbnb. You know, B&B when your second bedroom will make a fortune from the <laughs> Irish fans <laughs> and they go, they go over there. No, but you know what I mean? I think, John, that uh, uh, the thing here is, and I'm glad Larkin's agreeing because I wouldn't want to run you right, you have to focus everything on buying. Are we right here or yeah, not? Yeah, like the bottom line of this discussion is really you don't want to be over 66 and renting in Ireland at the, at the moment. Hopefully in years to come when there's a greater number of people in the private rented sector and we start to get a little bit more traction with the Department of Environment and the Minister you know, so we get better security of tenure for tenants, things will change. But in the meantime, you really don't want to be retired right. and renting in Ireland. Now, what I'm going to do, John, right? I'm going to get you the best advice that my money can buy, 
All right. So the program is going to get you a guy. Okay. Yeah. Who's a, who's this whiz kid accountant I'm talking about, right? So okay. we're going to get him for you, and we're going to doesn't do me well or Larkin. We're going to sit you down with him, and he's going to go through all these figures with you with a fine tooth comb, tooth comb, and come up with an answer. But right. I, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it, it, it'd be very interesting to find out how somebody in John's position because there's, there's a whole there has to be a lot of the people the number one cause of homelessness is, is separation you know so it's, yes. a, it's a real problem in the housing market uh, and there's a whole like John isn't unique there's a whole slew of people in John's position and if we could find an answer for that I think he'd be helping but, but John like it's not all negative remember you have equity now I know you have no house you don't have house equity but you have pension equity Okay. I don't know how much it is, and I don't want to know, yep. right? But you and your partner pension equity. It's money. It's cash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't take it out because it's taxed at too high a rate. You can't take it out until you're about 60, I think, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. But that's only 12 years away. We, 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 need a, we need a flexible bank. We, you know. Yeah. And you also need to think really carefully about the type of property. I, I did yeah. some research about people who are ageing and the types of houses that they have and really what you, what you find is that the house that you're in at 40 I know you're 48 but the, for the listeners out there the house you're in at 40 there's an 80% chance that's the house you're going to die in so the house that you buy when you're 48 or 49 or 50 you really have to think about what, what that house I'm is going, going to be like when you're ageing yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly if it's so. any consolation to you John the house I bought when I was 28 I'm going to die in <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always thinking about the people who are buying these nice trendy two up two down houses with a stairs at a 60 degree angle when the arthritis starts <laughs> and when the hip goes <laughs> how, how no, but, yeah. but you see I, I think John they, first of all this is, I, I'd like to thank you because I think it's a very good piece for radio because I think people are interested in it do you know what I mean yeah. because as Lorcan quite rightly says now the kind of stuff we've talked about here you've obviously thought about a lot of that yourself anyway have you yeah it's because I went through a pension adjustment order in uh, my divorce, you better explain. Oh, yeah, that that your 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 wife got some of your pension. You no, she actually uh, for go fair play for because in the agreement. That oh we yeah, made, it's all yeah, right. Yeah. Don't worry about. It. Don't want anyhow. To um, I did a bit of research on pensions at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and then I had a look and seen what it was worth, and then potentially what it would cost me to rent, and that's when I agree it was very bleak is what I thought. But um, from talking to people even recently, friends of mine, a lot of people don't even know what tax you pay when you retire. Some people said to me they didn't even realise that they pay tax on their pension. And it's a big concern. And there You seems pay tax in your old age pension. Yeah. You pay tax in everything. Yes. So there's a bit of a malaise out there and probably because a lot of people are a bit wary of their pension don't actually spend enough time finding out what happens when you get to 65. Yeah. Um, they, 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 it's a, you see, it's a minefield, Lorcan. Uh, there's another question, though, that I would raise with you, is we're in Dublin, right? Now, no matter what way we look at it, let's use the figure of 20 years. You know, John's 48, let's take 20, Right. There is no doubt, barring a catastrophe, that the rental market, the rents in Dublin in 20 years are going to be substantially more than they are today. Isn't that right? So, like, if it's 1,200 a month now, it'll be two grand a month 20 years hence or more. 
Yeah, I mean, Dublin's a, going to be an expensive place. Yeah, well, capital cities are the most expensive. Yeah, exactly. And that's by the nature of capital cities. It's where employment is, it's where higher wages yeah. are, it's high, where higher charges are, for example. But we see, one thing we've decided now, have we? On John's behalf. He's not living in Dublin. It doesn't look like it, based on yeah. the reality of the situation. And this is it. I mean, a lot of people, you have to face up to the reality of your income, you know, yeah. and where you can buy. And it's all very well saying, I'd like to live in, in Fox Ock or somewhere, but if your budget only allows you to live somewhere else, well, that's where you have to go. So John's, John's income is going to pretty much determine where he lives. Sure. The question but after but, that but, but there, there is a terribly important issue, John, which Larkin raised right at the beginning, but, uh, but we should repeat it. The problem with rental in this country is the eviction spectre. Yes. Do you know? Yes. You, like, you've got to get some certainty. Like, you're, you're 68, hopefully you're going to be 78, hopefully you're going to be 88. Uh, and... The last thing you want is worrying about a knock on the door. Yes. You want to spend those years in a reasonable way. In the next 20 years, the next 10 years, there are going to be different types of landlords. At the moment, most landlords are are individual people who buy property as a part of their pension fund. Okay. But we see the rise of Kennedy Wilsons and IRAs and all these professional landlords who are buying two and 3,000 units. Now, the difference between them is that they they aren't going to kick out because the nephew is coming up from Cork to go to UCD. It's a business for these people. The downside is they are you are going to pay top dollar rent and you'll get top dollar services. With if you rent from an ordinary pension pot kind of amateur landlord, the chances are that you'll be able to better negotiate a rent for yourself. But there is always the spectre of the nephew coming up from Cork to go to UCD. So it's it's a it's a kind of either either or situation. Mm-hmm. So the, the common denominator there is in both instances. The landlords have the right to evict you, basically, if they want to sell the property, if they want to refurbish the property, if they want it for family use or if they want it for their own use. And we need to change those things. My proposal that I put into the housing Oroctus uh, committee was that if somebody has more than three properties, they get a VAT number and they be treated like a business with 100% mortgage interest relief, but they lose the right to evict people for family member or for their own use or when the property is for sale. Now, that wouldn't... That would uh, only take care of about 10% of landlords, but it would take care of the big ones. So you All wouldn't right. have your terrible tenants. But, but the thing is, I, I have a daughter in London, right, uh, who, who obviously is working. And, uh, but, like, London is becoming increasingly unlivable. Like, you know, young young professionals can't afford the rent. Now, Dublin will never be London, but it won't be far behind us. The rents in Dublin are always going to be the highest in this country. For the first time about six months ago, we saw rents outside Dublin start to increase more than in Dublin. So what, what's happening is people are re- reaching their threshold in the city and then they're discovering that they can't afford the rent where they used to live in Portobello or in Clontarf. So they're moving farther and farther afield to places that they can. And that's you know it's pure urban economics. But it's people moving farther out to where they can afford. The problem then is they all get in their car and they have to drive. So you have to buy a car for yeah. Saturday. You have to pay I'm, I'm increasingly, money. for you John, I'm increasingly excited about Saturday afternoon <laughs> you wandering down to watch Toulouse. <laughs> <laughs> Play too long on a Saturday yeah, afternoon. Yeah, it doesn't look uh, as bleak now, yeah, Joe. No, no, with a baguette <laughs> under your arm yeah. and a bottle of red wine. We'll be wine. in the Airbnb, <laughs> that's what I want to know. And you'll be safe to something. Like, you know, I met a fella called Hook and he told me I should come down here. Listen, thank you so much for coming in. Um, it, it's been a super discussion. I wish you well. The right hook... Uh, is producing an accountant, tax advisor and pensions wizard for you in the next couple of weeks. And uh, that's our gift to you. And they'll give you, you they'll give you all the advice. Now, you can leave, take it or leave it. Of course, that's mm-hmm. the great advantage. But I think um, they, they're the experts. Not that Larkin isn't, but we're not going to discuss your personal affairs 
on the radio, obviously in the sanctity of their office. You're going to tell them all that stuff. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining me and good luck. Um, and I hope I'm around and I get an invite to, to the housewarming <laughs> in Toulouse. <laughs> Lurkin, yeah. thank you so much for joining yeah, me. Lurkin, sir, expert in uh, housing studies at DIT. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now from Oxford University by the Professor of European Studies, Timothy Gart-Nash. Professor Ash, welcome to the programme. Hello. Now, you've written a book, Free Speech, The Ten Principles for a Connected Age, because increasingly you and many other people are are concerned that one of the, 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 the most strongly held beliefs, particularly of the United Kingdom, the idea of free speech, is actually endangered. How so? Um, I think it's without freedom of speech, all other freedoms are endangered. I think it's the oxygen of freedom um, in Britain, in Ireland, other free countries. Um, and I think it's threatened in many ways um, it's threatened by people who say, if you say that, we will kill you, what I call the assassin's veto, like the threats to Salman Rushdie or the Charlie Hebdo cartoonist. But there's also something that worries me a lot, what I call the I'm offended veto, which would be, for example, students or small groups saying, oh, no, 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 you can't say that or you can't put on that play because we're offended. And um, if you put together, you know, all the things that everyone in the world is offended by, there isn't much you can talk about. Well, I mean, with the arrival of democracy in Eastern Europe, and in fact in other parts of the world, we saw statues of despots being hauled down, and we were obviously delighted that freedom had reached that particular uh, beleaguered country. But what we're seeing in universities like your own is that universities are actually, the students are actually suggesting, well, we're not going to have a statue of that guy who, who 200 years ago or whatever it was gave us money for this building, and we're not having the building named after him. Yeah. You know what? The roads must fall. I I don't have such a problem with that. I mean, the statue stays, and I think it should have stayed because it's part of, you know, a historic building and a beautiful street and so on. But they actually, um, first of all, it was a brilliant piece of student activism because it got all the headlines. Um, And secondly, they actually opened up rather important debate about Britain's colonial history, which I don't need to tell you wasn't all altogether nice. Um, so actually, I thought it was rather a fine way of opening up free speech, not closing it down. All right, okay. But uh, all right, okay. So in tennis terms, this is 15 love to you. Uh, how about my next serve, which is Cardiff University, uh, not allowing somebody who I would have thought was very, very uh, acceptable speaker, Germaine Greer. To speak, I mean, that's fifteen I, points to you. <laughs> I've never, I've never in my. I mean, maybe you can tell me where she's been banned, but it's very Germaine Greer for crying out loud. No, it is. I mean, it, it really it makes one pull, pull what, what little hair one has left out. Um, and and what, what's so bad about that is, you know, student protest is you know as old as the hill. I mean, of course, students have a right to protest or say we don't want to hear this person, 
But actually, this is an attempt at a kind of student censorship, because what it is is one group of students saying another group of students can't hear Germaine Greer, someone they want to hear, even though they want to hear her. So it is actually student-on-student -student censorship. And I think people like me, professors, people in universities, actually have to hold the line at that. Well, does that mean that uh, people like professors at university um, are actually not standing up and being counted on that issue? Is that well, really you know, mean? actually, the fact that we're talking about it shows in a way the opposite. Um, um, I think there's actually been a big pushback from, from, from universities. I mean, listen, of course, it's important that we listen to our students and are careful with our students, but there are certain sort of basic essentials we have to stand up for. Where, where the other place we really pushed back, I have to say, is against the British government, which in its new counterterrorism legislation was trying to say that universities shouldn't allow even nonviolent extremists um, to speak on campus. And that, you know, pretty much rules out some of the greatest radical thinkers of history, from Karl Marx all the way back to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I'd like to extend that a little more, but just before I do, it's important, isn't it? And my guest is Professor Timothy Gartnash, who's Professor of European Studies at Oxford University. But for the purpose of this discussion, his book, Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World, got me thinking about this. Um, it, this isn't just students, though. This is applying to every part of our life. For instance, on, on this radio program, if we say something that sort of doesn't fit with what I have to say is a new kind of liberal agenda, then you are abused. And like we had uh, a, a, a tremendous piece of, of legislation by referendum on same-sex marriage, for instance. But what was really sad was that the 50% who were going to vote yes demeaned the 50% who in conscience and honestly held conscience and belief who were voting no. It was sort of, well, if you vote no, you're a dinosaur. You must be mentally challenged or, you know, it, that's the real danger. This isn't just student activists. This is across yeah, certainly I mean, our you, two you, countries. You're absolutely right. So that... The, the thing, a sort of key phrase in my book is robust civility, robust civility. So obviously, we, we need to be free to say things, even very difficult things, very controversial things. For example, abortion would be a classic example. Those who are for it, those who are against it, right? Um, difficult things, things other people find hard to take, but to do them in a way that doesn't you know, ridicule them, doesn't question their basic human dignity, just doesn't treat them as half balmy. And I think that's what you're talking about. And, you know, actually, if one says that, everybody says, well, of course, that's what we do most of the time. That's what most, most people do. We know how to do that. And by the way, I think humor is incredibly important in these things. And one of the things I love about Ireland is that it has this terrific sense of humor. And humor is a great lubricant. It helps people 
get along together, even if they have completely opposite views. Yeah, now my first apartment in London was just, it was in Highgate, and, and of course Karl Marx is, was sort of buried up the road. Mm, indeed. Now, now, if Marx today were to be invited by the Oxford Union to debate, he probably wouldn't be allowed, even though what a, a ton of us might disagree with his views, um, they, they have tremendous validity, even though you disagree with them. Yeah, I mean, he was, of course, a nonviolent extremist. Um, so, so, you know, Home Office wouldn't be very keen on him. Um, to be fair to the Oxford Union, actually, they have a tradition of inviting highly controversial speakers, like, for example, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the National yes. Front in France, to come. And I think that's exactly, I mean, what I argue in the book is, you don't ban Marine Le Pen, you don't ban Donald Trump, you invite him, then you put a good debater up against him, you cross-question him, you demolish his bluff and braggadocio. That's how a free country deals with... Okay. Now, my, important, my guest, is Professor Timothy Gart Nash, because his book is really important. The book is Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected Age. I'm not sure, I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to correct me, um, I'm not sure whether it was the Oxford or Cambridge Unions, but in the late 1930s, they passed a motion, wasn't it, that they wouldn't fight uh, for, for, if the war were declared, they wouldn't fight, or words to that effect. Isn't that so? If famously, they would not fight for king and country. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Now, I'm not sure that that, that might happen today. What? That uh, they wouldn't do it? Well, I'm not sure to be allowed to it. I think well, maybe the motion. No, I think I. To be honest with you, you, I think I think I think they're on the whole a good bunch, and actually they're not so self-censoring. I All think right. the, 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 the censorship you. and self-censorship comes in in other departments. Now, now, if the motion had something to do with gender or sexual orientation or trans people. This is one of the really hot-button issues at the moment um, where where people do feel very nervous. Well, the transitions, I'd just like to tell you, may not have heard, but the state of Victoria is from the age of four, children will be taught that there is no such thing as boys or girls. There'll be some other kind of names, but there won't be boys and girls. They're all the same. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is really worrying that we are creating some kind of, of liberal thinking and talk that nobody else that have been held dear to us for, for, for centuries, millennia even, are suddenly being thrown out the window for a new kind of liberal thinking. Well, I mean, you know, I mean that's true. And, and, and I find myself when our students are raising these issues sort of wanting to say, well, you know, you do realize that half the population of Syria has been made homeless and people are drowning in the Mediterranean every day, and there are one or two other problems in the world. But, 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 um, you know, one of the things about being young is wanting to epate, to, 
stir up your elders. Okay, but we we surely though. I go back to what I said earlier on. This is not a student issue. This is now an issue for our countries. I mean, you you make the point. For instance, Jesus would certainly have been banned from speaking in Oxford because he would have talked about you know render to Cameron the things that are Cameron and uh, Cameron's and, <laughs> and render to God things that are God or whatever. I mean, not to mention the camel going through the eye of a needle, which would be yeah. So the thing is, the real worry, and Jesus is an interesting one, because it's increasingly difficult now to sort of say, well, uh, I go to church on Sundays, or I believe in God, or whatever. You are you are somehow now being described as, as, as some sort of dinosaur. So Jesus, certainly, whatever about Karl Marx, Jesus would have been described as some, some sort of really wild-eyed, long-haired lunatic. Um, I'm, I, 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 I'd say that's right. And indeed, this was, um, I think, Pontius Pilate, you know, was getting advice from the home office of his day, I think. <laughs> but, 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 but I think that's right. And I think a lot of Christians do feel, and I've actually talked about this with Rowan Williams, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, that there's a sort of secular public sphere, which is, has a sort of reflex metropolitan atheism. Um, and but actually, it's much more interesting and much more stimulating and much more challenging for all of us if everyone can have their say. You know, the devout right. Catholic, the Jesuit, and the atheist. Um, so in the United States, it's the other way around. It's the atheists who are, who 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 are sort of frowned upon and frozen right. out of the public sphere. So I want everybody to have their voice heard. All right. Well, before you go, the book's a great read. It's Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected Age by my guest, Professor Timothy Gart Nash at Oxford University, whereas he's Professor of European Studies. But I think the great thing is, before you go, Professor Ash, is there's hope for us yet. Trumpy can still say what he likes, and he might be the next president of the U.S. So then we're definitely going to have free speech. I would like to invite him to the Oxford Union. <laughs> and listen, if you want a good debate or against him, I'm I sure man. do. I I'm sure your... do. But I can hear at least on your program, free speeches in um, great spirits. Thank you so much for joining me. Real pleasure. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie George Hook and it's the right hook. Well, um, they're never really out of the headlines. There's always a magazine article or a book about the Kennedys. My next guest has written a wonderful book about one of the lesser known, but perhaps one of the most interesting of the Kennedys. And it's the story of Kathleen, um, JFK's younger sister, but better known as Kick. And the book is Kick, the true story of Kick Kennedy's, uh, JFK's forgotten sister. And the author is with me, Paula Byrne. Paula, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, there were a ton of Kennedys, and we've all seen this picture um, of Joe and Rose and this array of children. Um, where did Kathleen or Kick sort of come in the hierarchy? Well, she was in the sort of first batch because <laughs> there were nine of them. Um, and she was the second daughter. Rosemary, her elder sister, was brain damaged. So it was Joe, 
um, uh, Jack and there was a named Kathleen. Um, so Jack in between, and um, and so she was the, she was the fourth child, but. To all intents and purposes, was the was the eldest daughter because of Rosemary's uh, brain damage. Yeah. Now the the thing about this, of course, um, Joe Kennedy, father of of all these Kennedys, wasn't a very nice person, uh, and he finished up as ambassador to the United Kingdom during the war, where he was probably the most unpopular U.S. ambassador ever. But it did mean that his children came with him, and uh, Kathleen or Cake arrives in Britain. And this is really where her story almost begins and ends in a way, isn't it? Well, it is. But he was very popular when he first came in 1938. Uh, the, the, the Britain loved him, loved the photogenic Kennedys with their big, gorgeous smiles. It was only when he was perceived as a pro-Nazi appeaser isolationist, which came much later. So he was he was a big hit. He came with, they, they said, a whole football team of these gorgeous children um, and she rose to the top of that society by just sheer dint of personality. Um, very hard to do in English aristocratic upper-class upper circles where they don't like outsiders. So it was a really extraordinary story that she did manage to, to break through all that crustiness. Now, when she broke through in Britain's social life, all the other women would have been debutantes, presented at court, to all this sort of good stuff. And then, as presumably this very attractive but brash American arrives, uh, uh, present, presenting presumably a lot of competition, and a lot of mothers are unhappy because uh, uh, some of the prize guys are now maybe going somewhere else. Her, her romantic Romantic life, though, is is in a way almost a stuff of legend. Um, what happened first? The extraordinary thing was she was incredibly popular by just being herself. She was a very American, very funny, very witty, very interested in politics, clever. And the English boys thought she was fantastic. She wasn't raised like an English debutante with nothing to say for herself. She had lots to say for herself. Um, she had to fight her way being one of nine. Rose and Joe brought those kids up to have an opinion. And everyone embraced her. So you would have thought people would be resentful. I, could, I couldn't find a single person to say a bad word about her because everybody loved her. Rose tried really hard. Rose took elocution lessons. She tried to be British. It doesn't work if you're not. Kick didn't even try. And yet she just charmed. She just had, she had JFK's charm in bucket loads. I mean, they were charming kids, there's no question. And they became charming men and women, as we well know, um, all those candidates. Uh, but she, she because you're know, having your father as the U.S. ambassador is obviously a bit of a help. Now, Joe Jr., who really did sort of, Joe Sr. had invested all his hopes and dreams that Joe Jr. Uh, would be, the, the guy who would become president, although tragically he dies later on in World War Two. Um, but what about this romance? She she talks to uh, the the Cavendish, who is um, he was the the heir apparent really as Duke of Devonshire. So she was going to marry into the highest levels of British aristocracy. But they were not Catholic; they were Anglican. And they were vehemently anti-Catholic. So despite being the most eligible bachelor in England, the person everyone's daughter would want to marry, the Kennedys were completely horrified that she fell in love with this man. 
Well, of course, whatever about Joe, um, Rose was vehemently Catholic. Rose said about six decades of the rosary every night before she went to bed. And in fact, I, I've always been amazed that Rose Kennedy had nine children. Uh, I, I always thought, you know, that it must have been done by uh, artificial insemination or something <laughs> such, because, because Joe spent most of his time with other women anyway. But uh, what happens? She, she does me- marry him, though. What happens? Well, she rebels as she rebels against her faith, her country, um, her family. She is deeply in love. She falls in love with London. In some ways, Billy Cavendish, Duke of Devonshire's eldest son, is, is, is an epitome. He symbolises England. I think he, she fell in love with England. And, and as Nancy Lancaster said to her, once England's in your blood, you're lost. Um, so but she did defy her, her family and friends, and she had to renounce her faith. She was very religious. She prayed on her knees. JFK, we, as we know, prayed on his knees every night of his life, even when he was president, people would come into the White House, they'd be on his knees saying the rosary. That was that was absolutely indoctrinated into the children. But Kick had the gift of faith, as Rose said. Um, so it was a huge thing. It was by but no nobody, means But thing. nobody went to the wedding, apart from Joe Jr. Everybody else, like, uh, well, they were presumably told by their parents not to go, but nobody went to the wedding. But then, like, she gets married. She's made this enormous sacrifice um, to marry this guy. And, and then tragedy strikes. Well, she said to be married in the register office house, squalid. It's a great word, squalid. And the family were, were, were there for complicated reasons, partly because it's wartime and people couldn't travel, but they wouldn't have come anyway, frankly. <laughs> um, Rose booked herself into a sanatorium, had a, pretty much a nervous breakdown, and only Joe Jr. went to the wedding. Um, so, yeah, she she did sacrifice a lot, and the, the family didn't even write to her. And Joe Jr. wrote a telegram saying the power of silence is great to his parents. It was the first time he stood up to his parents. It said, come on, she's done it now. But she loved Billy. Yeah, but it didn't last very long. It didn't last very long because he went back to open the Second Front and to liberate Belgium. So they only they had five weeks of honeymoon bliss. And a really tragic story. He, he liberated Belgium and he was taken down by a sniper. He was so young, you know, 28. They've only been married for five months. Um, it's just a tragic, tragic story. But 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 then um, she another Earl Earl Fitzwilliam. But this guy's getting divorced, so Rose is having hysterics all over again. <laughs> I know if Quick rebelled, you know, in the most awful way by falling in love and then marrying uh, Cavendish, she then you know, made it even worse by falling in love with Peter Fitzwilliam because he not only was not Catholic and Anglican, but he was married with a daughter. And Rose was absolutely furious and said, if you, if you do marry him, then you will lose the family. We will never speak to you again. It was absolutely horrific. And the, the, the tragedy this time, of course, is it's not the husband, but the wife-to-be. Because, of course, as you say, Peter Fitzwilliam is her fiancé at this stage. She's flying uh, to France uh, to try and get permission from her father. And, and she dies in a plane crash. I know, just uh, you know, another Kennedy tragedy that uh, they're flying to see Joe to get his blessing. He agrees to see them. There's a storm, and the pilot says it's really unsafe to fly. All commercial flights have been uh, abandoned because of the weather, and they were so keen to to to, to do this that they they you know inadvertently got into the plane, and so her story ended in a very tragic way. 
And of course, as I said, Joe Jr. Uh, is killed in World War II as well. Uh, Rosemary, the elder sister, as you talk about, is brain damaged and has one of the very early lobotomies, which makes her a complete vegetable. So the sort of Kennedy curse has started even in the mm-hmm. 1940s. Absolutely. And there's, and there's four such beautiful uh, life-enhancing people. And this is a wonderful story because JFK was so ill. And, and the story when he says, I, I should have been the one to go. You know, Joe Jr. and Kick were so full of life, so effervescent, so vital, such vitality. And he said, you know, who would think that they, these gorgeous golden people, would be dead but before they were 30? And, and here am I, you know, still the, the ill one. And he, he did have survivors' guilt about that, I think. Well, it, it, like anything on the Kennedy, still can sell, Paula. So you're obviously going to sell hundreds of thousands. You're going to beat, <laughs> you're going so. to beat John Grisham <laughs> on the list. Uh, so we'll do our bit by saying the book is Kick, the true story of Kick Kennedy, JFK's forgotten sister. Uh, the Kennedy legend lives, and and this extraordinary woman cut down in the prime of life just makes a really interesting story. It also tells a lot about her mother, her father, her brothers and her sisters, uh, an extraordinary family cursed as we know. My guest, author Paula Byrne. Paula, thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.